From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, comic actor and screenwriter Kamel Nanjiani talks about starring in the HBO Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales. Nanjiani co-starred in the comedy series Silicon Valley, co-wrote and starred in the film The Big Sick, and was the first South Asian to play a Marvel superhero. Also, we'll hear from filmmaker Ryan Johnson. His new movie is a sequel to his popular comedic murder mystery comedy Knives Out. It's called Glass Onion, and in it, Daniel Craig returns as the Southern gentleman detective Benoit Blanc. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. And Justin Chang reviews two new movies based on well-known children's stories, Raul Dahl's Matilda the Musical and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. That's all coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview, and I'll let her introduce it. My guest Kumail Nanjiani grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, soaking up as much American pop culture as he could get access to. He's since become a part of American pop culture. He started his performing career in the U.S. as a stand-up comic. He became well-known for co-starring in the HBO comedy series Silicon Valley. He was nominated for an Oscar for co-writing the comedy drama The Big Sick with his wife, Emily V. Gordon, based on their experiences when they started dating. And she came down with such a serious case of pneumonia, she had to be put in a medical coma. He proposed soon after she came out of it, which was a shock to his parents who were hoping he'd have an arranged marriage with a Muslim woman. In Karachi, he managed to find superhero comics, which he loved. Last year, he played a superhero in the Marvel movie Eternals. He was the first South Asian superhero in a Marvel production. Now he stars in the Hulu drama limited series Welcome to Chippendales about the backstory of the famous club that in 1979 became the first to feature male strippers doing sexy choreographed routines for an audience of women. Nanjiani plays Steve Banerjee, an immigrant from India who founded Chippendales and was undone by his own corrupt business practices and by taking out a hit on his own choreographer who had become his rival. In 1993, Banerjee was charged with hiring a hitman to kill the choreographer for attempted murder of three former Chippendale dancers, as well as for arson and racketeering. In 1994, he died by suicide in his jail cell. When we first meet Banerjee in the series, he's managing a gas station in Los Angeles. He appears to be a modest, hardworking man. In this scene from the first episode, he's been invited to dinner at the home of his boss, the owner of several gas stations. He offers Banerjee a promotion. To the boss's surprise, Banerjee declines. I've been meaning to speak with you about this for some time now, sir. I have made the decision to leave. But what will you do? How much money have you saved? As of Monday, $44,000. $44,000? How is that possible? Actually, it's $44,155. I rounded down because I didn't want to brag. But you pay me $2.60 an hour, multiply that by 70 hours a week, 52 weeks a year by five years, that comes to $52,000, of which I have managed to save 90%. 90? I have no social life to speak of, sir. All I do is sleep and work. For food, I eat expired sandwiches from the station. If you have $44,000, that's nearly enough to own your own gas station. That's true. 
So why not just work with me for a few more years? Sir, I do not want a gas station. What do you mean you don't want a gas station? That was my dream when I came here. But that was seven years ago. My goals have changed. I have changed. Camille Nanjiani, welcome to Fresh Air. I love your performance in this. Congratulations. I feel like we're seeing a different side of you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You know, um, the character that you play, the founder of Chippendales, starts off kind of like the stereotype of the model minority, you know, the model immigrant. And it ends with murder and suicide. Um, The story, the arc of the story in the Hulu series is how he got from being, you know, this model worker at the gas station to these corrupt and murderous practices. Um, Did you have any reservations about playing an ambitious South Asian immigrant who turns into a successful businessman and a criminal? I did, you know, so this project first came to me in 2017, right after the Big Sick had come out. And suddenly, you know, go after going from like clawing and fighting for every little opportunity, suddenly I was having things come my way and my head was spinning a little bit. And back then it was a movie and Rob Siegel, who also created this series, had written a script. And he said the guy who created Chippendales was this Indian immigrant and ended up, you know, uh, taking a hit out on his choreographer and doing all this stuff. And at the time, I didn't know whether me playing an Indian immigrant who's such a bad guy was the right thing to do. This was 2017, so if you think politically where we were at the time, you know, it was a very specific period of America. And my. You're talking about the Muslim ban period under Trump. I mean, exactly, exactly. And so I just felt at the time that this wasn't the right thing for me to do. Um,. The way I'd seen America was sort of different. I, I guess I perhaps had been a little naive, but I just felt like me doing a show with the brown guy who's who does bad things um, might not help the cause. Um, and then this project came back to me last year, and my feelings on it had changed a little bit, and I felt like I just wanted to play characters who were complicated and layered and messy and not necessarily play sort of noble characters. You know, I sort of, I decided that me trying to portray brown people as only good wasn't a valuable uh, practice anymore. Um, Your character, you know, Steve Banerjee, has no sense of humor. Um, Is that hard to play when you're a comic? Somebody who, like... Probably wouldn't get a joke, let alone tell one. <laughs> you know, that was the thing I was most intimidated uh, about when I took on this role. I was like, can I play someone who really isn't funny at all? Or if he is funny, uh, he's not funny on purpose. Right. <laughs> I didn't. So so I was really, really intimidated, like, you know, to play someone who's really not charming or a people person or good at public speaking or anything. It's sort of, you know, every acting role I've done to some degree has that part of my personality in it, Uh, the desire to be funny, seeing that as a value worth having. Um, In my personal life and in the characters I play, uh, I want to portray a a sort of confidence that puts people at ease. And so this guy didn't have any of the things that I consider to be my strengths as a performer, you know. So it was really scary. I didn't know how to sort of take those things out of my instincts. And if I'm shutting down such a big part of my personality, 
what's left? Um, I was scared that people would not want to watch me as someone who who doesn't have that in him because maybe me without that isn't compelling. He defines success as making a profit, period. And it gets to the point of making a profit no matter what it takes. And he's been discriminated against as an immigrant from India. He's been insulted and humiliated because he's South Asian. But then he ends up discriminating against black and Latino people. And I'll play an example of this. At one point in the story, there's one black Chippendale dancer in the group. And he's the only dancer that's not featured on the first edition of the now famous Chippendale calendar. And so the dancer, uh, Otis, goes up and confronts your character, Banerjee, and asks, like, you know, why aren't I on the calendar? Why am I the only dancer who is not on the calendar? And here's how you respond. I thought about it. I really wanted to put you in it because I loved the pictures. But ultimately, I felt it would be bad for sales. Bad for sales how? Well, it's one thing for women to enjoy you in the privacy of the club. But hanging in their home, a naked black man, in full view of their husband, you know how white people are. They get threatened at the office, I the boss can I think people can handle a shirtless black man, Steve. Most can, but not all. We want them to buy the calendars, too. This isn't the South. This isn't Mississippi or Alabama in Otis. 1967. Otis, not day goes by I don't experience some form of racism in this city. I assume the same is true for you? Yeah, yeah, of course. I guess I just, just never expected it from you. You can't take this personally. This is business. Business. And in business, there's only one color that matters. Do you know what color that is? Green. Green! See? You get it. That was my guest, Kumail Nanjiani, in a scene from the current Hulu series, Welcome to Chippendales. You know, in other times when he is accused of racism, because at one point he starts banning blacks and Latinos from coming to the club um, because it's not good for business. You know, white people won't like it, and they're the majority. And his attitude is, it's not my fault people are racist. (laughs) which is a very peculiar response. Um, But this is an example, and this isn't the only example of it, of when someone who is discriminated against becomes the person discriminating against another racial, ethnic, or religious group. I'm wondering if you've seen that happen a lot yourself. I certainly have. I mean, I remember, you know, right after 9-11, I lived in Chicago, and I would have people be racist to me on the street. You know, it happened probably four or five times within the first couple months after that. And it wasn't all white people. I had people who were racist to me who had also, I'm sure, been discriminated against. And it was sort of this big epiphany for me. I thought that people who had been discriminated against would have this understanding and not want to sort of pass the buck, so to speak, um, try and do what they had uh, experienced, try and you know do that to someone else. But that was not the case. I was surprised. I expected white people to be racist to me, but I had not expected black people to be racist to me. I had not expected Asian people to be racist to me. Um, so I've certainly, certainly experienced it myself firsthand. And the other thing that sort of struck me about that clip is it speaks to Steve's morality, which is entirely about money. You know, that's his entire morality system. Um, if you're successful, you're a moral person. 
If you're not, you're not worthy. And that's a mindset that I sort of learned by being in Hollywood, actually. I oh, saw that's people. interesting, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I started doing stand-up in 2001, and I saw how people treated me when I first moved to L.A., and I see how people treat me now. Um, people, because I have a little bit more success, people treat me as a more valid human being. Uh, so I think that directly speaks to that. You know, if you're successful, people think that you're more worthy. Um, so I think there's a lot going on in there. And then the other clip that that you mentioned sort of um, – that we didn't hear is him justifying it's not my fault other people are racist that was something that I wanted to put in there because I did want to hear Steve trying to justify him being undeniably racist how does he as someone who has experienced racism how does he justify being racist to other people um, so I wanted to have that in there so you wrote that yes that little part where I say it's this conversation I have with Irene where I'm saying, you know, if if white people would be uncomfortable if there were black or Latino people in here. They're the ones who's raised it. It's not my fault. I just want to be successful within the system that I did not create. So there are sort of two different times when he says that. And both of those little uh, moments were moments that I wrote because I, I wanted to just voice that part of his head. Kumail Nanjiani speaking with Terry Gross. He's starring in the Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and Justin Chang will recommend two new kids' movies based on well-known children's stories, Matilda and Pinocchio. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the Smartwool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Let's get back to Terry's interview with comic, actor, and screenwriter Kumail Nanjiani. He stars in the current Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales. Last year, with the movie Eternals, he became the first South Asian to play a superhero in a Marvel movie. Talk about whether you change yourself physically. And as a background to this question, I I should say, you shot the movie Eternals. It came out last year, so I'm assuming that you shot that before shooting Welcome to Chippendales. And for Eternals, which is um, a Marvel movie, you played a superhero um, who has this kind of cosmic energy he can use as a weapon. And you basically worked out for nine months, and you look like one of the Chippendale dancers. You're so muscular. And that really became a thing on social media, you know, pictures of of your, your body. But for Welcome to Chippendales... You play somebody who is not in touch with his sexuality, at least not what from we see, and isn't in touch with his body at all. He's just rigid most of the time. And even the suit that he wears, because he always wears a suit, even the suit that he wears, which looks like it's made out of 1970s rigid polyester, um, that only adds to his stiffness. He, He looks like his suit is his body armor. So it's such a contrast to the strength and power and bodiness <laughs> of um, of the Marvel movie. 
Yeah, that's very insightful, the way you described his suit as being his body armor. That's how I always thought about it. So for Eternals, I actually you know, worked out for a year and a half to get that because I felt like this is a guy who's vain, who loves how he looks and feels, and I he's proud of, you know, his body. And so I wanted to create a body that I thought that this guy would be proud of, you know. And then for to play Steve Banerjee in Chippendales, it was the exact opposite of that. There's not much material on him, but I saw a picture of him with all the Chippendales dancers, and it was this pudgy Indian nerdy guy in a big suit with all these shirtless white Adonises. (laughs) And it really felt like he was the king of a world that wouldn't have him as a member, except that he's the king of that world, that he had to sort of uh, be the boss to be able to buy his way into that society. But he doesn't fit. So to me, that was such an important part of the story, that he be completely different from all these people around him. So there's a a physical difference to that, you know. and then also, just his relationship with his body is very different. You have all these men, including Nick DeNoia, you know, Murray Bartlett's character. The choreographer. They're all very fluid. They're all very in touch with their bodies. They seem to be very comfortable in their skin. They're, they're good at moving. They're okay being shirtless. And I wanted this character to be created in contrast to that. So he does not like how he looks. He does not like his body. He's, he's sort of like a block of granite just sitting there. Um, he, and he uses suits to cover himself up. And so his physicality, you know, he's very stiff, comes from a couple couple of different uh, things. One, it comes from just the contrast to everyone else around him. I wanted to create a character who, who moved very differently, sort of almost like Robocop. You know, I, I little <laughs> bit based his movements on Robocop, the way he moves his neck and stuff. And then secondly, I felt that this character, in trying to figure him out, you know, it took me a long time to figure out how to play him. And eventually, uh, the image I got of him was this fire inside a block of ice, you know. So outside, he's very rigid, but inside him, I think in his belly, there's this fire that he's very, very scared of. And every molecule in his body is working all the time to try and prevent that fire from coming out. And so that's also where the rigidity comes from. You know, the stiffness comes from him really trying to hold that fire inside his stomach. That's a great description. Um, So when you change yourself physically to play the founder of Chippendales after having played uh, a really well-muscled Marvel superhero, what did you do to change your body? I mean, did did you go about trying to lose the muscles you worked so hard to get? I gained more weight, basically, um, because I, I I get so much from exercising mentally that I didn't want to let that go. Now, ex- I exercised way less while we were shooting just because I have less time, but there's nothing else in my life that gives me that sort of grounding that I get from working out now. Uh, I just ate a lot, and I ate a lot of bad stuff. I was basically eating four, um, quote-unquote, unhealthy meals a day. Um, I ended up gaining about 25 pounds on top of what I had um, just to sort of, you know, I wanted my face to be rounder and I just just wanted to feel physically a little bit um, uncomfortable. So you grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. Your family is Shia Muslim. 
My understanding is you hadn't seen stand-up comedy before coming to America. I guess that's not a thing in Pakistan, even though there's a bunch of like successful Pakistani stand-up comics in America now. Yeah, I had seen... Um, there was one stand-up comedian named Moin Akhtar, and he used to sort of do impressions. So I'd just seen that, but I haven't even, hadn't even seen him do stand-up. I'd seen him host awards shows and stuff. So I really hadn't seen anything that was the kind of observational stand-up that um, is still, I think, the sort of the dominant form of stand-up here. Like, I'd never seen... Or even the kind of personal stand-up that, that, that also happens here. I'd never seen that brand of stand-up uh, at all until I moved here. I'd only seen, like, impressions and stuff. So what was the first stand-up you saw, and what was your reaction to seeing it? I, I don't remember the very first one I saw, but I remember the first one that really hit me really hard was Jerry Seinfeld's HBO special. It was called I'm Telling You for the Last Time. And it was him sort of doing a greatest hits of his entire career. I think it's about an hour and 40 minutes. It's a pretty long stand-up special. And it just blew me away. I couldn't believe that you could just be on stage doing jokes that people would pay you money for it. You know, when I'd seen stand-ups doing impressions in Pakistan, I was like, oh, I can't do that. I don't know how to do impressions. But suddenly I saw a normal guy in a normal voice on stage telling jokes. And I was like, okay, I think I could do that. If if stand-up is also that, then maybe I could do it. It really, really crawled up my spine. It was sort of, you know, earth-shattering for me. When you started watching American stand-up, like, I think this would have been the, the period when so, so many male comics were doing very, very explicit sexual humor. That may have been very shocking to you. It was, and I've never been a fan of potty humor. Like, since I was a little kid, I, I never liked it. I never liked, like... um I never thought, I mean, I can't believe I'm I'm saying this on your show, but I never thought farts were funny. I, I don't know if that's ever been discussed on your show. But I remember kids really thinking that was funny, and I never thought that was funny. Um, and so even when I did stand-up, uh, I never, ever talked about anything that I would consider filthy. You know, I don't really do sex jokes or any sort of body humor jokes or anything like that. I just never thought that that stuff was my bag. I know that you've said that people used to say, hey, Kumar. <laughs> yes. Re referring to another South Asian uh, character. Um, and you said in reaction to that, that they used Kumar as a way to stereotype you. And that one day you hoped you reached the point of name recognition where people could say, hey, Kamel, to stereotype other South Asians. <laughs> so have you reached that point of name recognition yet? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I have. If I have, I apologize to anybody who's being yelled at <laughs> by people driving by in cars <laughs> because I know it's not a good feeling because it really did happen. Someone called me. Someone yelled, hey, 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 Kumar, where's Harold? That's what they said. And so if someone else is being racisted at using my name, uh, I'm sorry. And uh, hey, things turned out pretty well for me. Well, Camille, it's just been wonderful to talk with you again. I'm so glad we did this. Um, so, you know, good luck with the rest of um, 
the Hulu series, Welcome to Chippendale, and the second season of Little America. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a thrill. Kamel Nanjiani stars in the current Hulu series, Welcome to Chippendales. He spoke with Terry Gross. Two new movies are based on well-known children's stories. One is Raoul Dahl's Matilda the Musical, adapted from the popular stage show. The other is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, a stop-motion animation version of the classic fairy tale. Our film critic, Justin Chang, recommends them both. The young heroes of Carlo Collodi's classic fantasy Pinocchio and Roald Dahl's 1988 children's novel Matilda may not seem too alike at first. One is a wooden puppet who becomes a real boy and finds he has a lot to learn, while the other is a real girl of such extraordinary brain power that she winds up schooling everyone else. But in their own ways, they're both about a child's extraordinary power to change the world, a lesson that stays winningly intact in two new screen adaptations, both arriving on Netflix this month. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, as its title announces, is very much the work of the dark fantasist who made Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. That's not to say it's too scary for children, only that its mix of visual richness and ghoulish whimsy would be hard to mistake for another filmmaker's work. In this telling, the aging Italian woodcarver Geppetto has a young son who's killed by a falling missile during World War I. Many years later, Geppetto, still distraught, chops down a pine tree in a drunken rage and carves a little puppet boy out of it, as if he could somehow bring his son back. And so this Pinocchio, forged in grief, springs to life not as a joyous creation, but as a sorry replacement for Geppetto's lost son. That gives Pinocchio's mischievous, defiant behavior an extra emotional edge. Del Toro, who directed the movie with Mark Gustafson, has also darkened the story in other ways. This Pinocchio, who's voiced by Gregory Mann, dies multiple times and is magically resurrected each time. World War II also looms in the background, and Pinocchio will soon come face to face with Mussolini himself. It's not the first time Del Toro has blended history and fantasy, pitting his young characters against the forces of fascism. It is, however, the first time he's made a feature entirely in stop-motion animation, and the handcrafted herky-jerky images are a wonder to behold. The backdrops are exquisite, and I loved the intricate non-human character designs for a benevolent woodland sprite, voiced by Tilda Swinton, and for Sebastian J. Cricket, a kind of Jiminy-like sidekick, voiced by Ewan McGregor. Still, for all its overflowing invention, this Pinocchio like a lot of Del Toro movies, could have been tighter and more disciplined. I'm also not sure why the movie had to be a musical, given how unmemorable most of the songs are. By contrast, the songs in the new movie Roll Dahl's Matilda the Musical are as terrific as they were when I heard them performed on Broadway years ago. The movie is an extremely faithful adaptation of that hugely popular show. It tells the story of Matilda Wormwood, a child prodigy who's already reading Dickens and Dostoevsky by age six. Much of the pleasure of the story comes from watching Matilda, the winning Alicia Weir, get revenge on her foolish, vulgar, and generally indifferent parents whenever they treat her badly, which is often. 
but Matilda will soon have bigger fish to fry in the form of Miss Trunchbull, the sadistic headmistress at her school, who terrifies her students and calls them maggots. In one show-stopping number, Matilda's fellow students manage to overcome their fears and rise up, declaring their right to be, as they call themselves, revolting children. Miss Trunchbull is played, with the help of a fat suit and facial prosthetics, by Emma Thompson. And she's a memorable monster, subjecting her students to all kinds of cruel mind games and baroque forms of corporal punishment. It's fun watching Matilda outwit her, while also bonding with her kind-hearted teacher, Miss Honey, a very moving Lashana Lynch. The movie retains the show's central creative trio, the director Matthew Warchus, the writer Dennis Kelly, and the composer-lyricist Tim Minchin. That's mostly a good thing, even if the movie's relentless high spirits and bright, bouncy colors tend to overpower the darker vibes of the original story. There are also elements here that simply don't work as well on screen as they did on stage, including a subplot that takes place within Matilda's own imagination. I have to say, though, that my six-year-old screening companion didn't mind in the slightest. I looked over every so often to find her laughing at the jokes, covering her eyes at the scary parts, and bopping along to the music. She was completely transported, and so, in those moments, was I. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Coming up, filmmaker Ryan Johnson talks about his new movie, Glass Onion, the sequel to his popular murder mystery comedy, Knives Out. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Our next guest is screenwriter and director Ryan Johnson. His new film, Glass Onion, is a sequel to his popular comedic murder mystery, Knives Out. Glass Onion brings back the Southern gentleman detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, to uncover a new mystery. Tech billionaire Miles Braun, actor Ed Norton, has invited his closest friends, the group calls themselves the Disruptors, to his private island in Greece for a long weekend getaway during COVID to play out a murder mystery game. His invitation comes encased in a large, elaborate puzzle box that each guest receives and has to solve. His friends include a Connecticut governor running for Senate, the chief scientist at his company, a men's rights YouTuber, and a former model who now owns a successful sweatpants company and thinks of herself as a social media truth teller, but who is often just really offensive. Also invited, but whom we can't really call Miles' friend, is Andy, who was Braun's former business partner until he shut her out of the business. And Benoit Blanc appears much to Braun's confusion. Blanc tells him he received his own puzzle box and invitation. Ryan Johnson gets some wonderful performances from his cast of Craig Norton, Janelle Monet, Leslie Odom Jr., Katherine Hahn, Dave Bautista, Kate Hudson, Jessica Hennick, 
and Madeline Klein in this very entertaining comedy. As you might expect, the murder mystery game becomes very real, and Benoit Blanc finds himself in another whodunit. Along the way, Johnson skewers the culture of social media influencers and the cult-like worship of tech billionaires. Glass Onion is the sequel to Knives Out, and another Benoit Blanc mystery is expected. Ryan Johnson's other films are Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. Let's start with a clip from Glass Onion. The guests have arrived on Bronze Island, and Miles has a quick word with Blanc to ask him why he's there. Blanc hands him his invitation. I didn't send it to you. How many of these boxes did you create? Five, one for each of my friends. No test boxes, no prototypes. My, my puzzle guy barely got the five done in time, and he apprenticed with Ricky Jay. And once the boxes are open and the puzzle's completed, is there any way to close them again? To, to reset them? Hang on. Hang on. Someone reset the box. Someone reset the box. Oh, they sent it to oh, you oh, as oh. a gag. Miles is doing a murder mystery. Let's invite Benoit freaking Locke. Oh, it's so good. I am... Mortified. I, I don't. Why? I, I've got the pre-definite detective in the world at my murder mystery party. That is so legit, Mr. Braun. I've learned through bitter experience that a, an anonymous invitation is not to be trifled with. Okay, look, come on. I'd love to have you visit me at my home. There, you've been invited. Well, you're an official guest now. <laughs> Thrilled to have you. I mean, relax, enjoy yourself. Hey, try to solve the murder mystery if you can. I don't want to toot my own horn, but it's pretty next level. I'm going to foil. I'll see you at the pool. That's Ed Norton and Daniel Craig in the new movie Glass Onion by my guest, Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson, welcome to Fresh Air. Hey, Sam. Thank you for having me. So Benoit Blanc is back for another mystery here. Um, When you were writing this story, what were the elements of the first movie that you knew you wanted to keep and some of the things that you definitely didn't want to have again? Well, this uh, a big part of making this movie was thinking of it not really as a continuation of the first one, but kind of going back to the source of inspiration for me for all of this, which were Agatha Christie's books. And as a big fan of Agatha Christie, I think there's sometimes a common misperception that she told the same story over and over, like the body in the library, yada, yada, yada. And anyone who actually is a fan of Christie knows the opposite is true. She was doing wildly different things with every book and taking crazy narrative swings and shaking up not just the location and and the cast of characters and the type of murder, but she was mixing genres. She was uh, every single thing. You You can tell with every single new book why she was excited to write it. And that, I guess, was the main thing I wanted to do with this. I wanted to create another fun, you know, murder mystery, but I wanted to tell the audience that if we keep making these movies, each one is going to be a completely different ride. Well, let's talk about some of the wackier characters that you have uh, in in Glass Onion. Uh, you know, in the first movie, you skewered this uh, entitled family of a very successful and wealthy mystery writer. Um, but in this movie, you're more targeting like social media influencers and, as you said, like tech billionaires. Um, let's start with Birdie, played by Kate Hudson. Like she 
was a former model. She now, during COVID, she created a sweatpants company that's become very successful. And she sort of thinks of herself as like this no-filter truth teller. Um, and she's often just tweeting like super offensive things. And she even went on Oprah and compared herself to Harriet Tubman. <laughs> like, like, so could you, could you talk about her, Birdie's origins? Yeah. I mean, the instant I had the tech billionaire at the center, that kind of informed who I was going to fill out the rest of the suspects with. And um, with Birdie, for instance, I mean, she is a very <laughs> over-the-top comic character. She is also, though, one of the suspects. She may very well have, you know, she, any one of these people could have done it. And so that means that she can't, that on the screen, it can't just become kind of a joke, and when you have characters this broad, and a character like Birdie who's this broad, you need an actress with the uh, with the comic intelligence of someone like Kate Hudson playing it. Yeah, I mean, all all the acting is really great, even like the the smaller roles like Jessica Hennig and Madeline Klein. Like everyone's doing great work here, um, and that kind of brings me to Ed Norton, who plays the tech billionaire Miles Braun who's the kind of guy that does deals at ayahuasca ceremonies. <laughs> um, you know, there's a there's a tendency right now to worship tech billionaires as these infallible geniuses, um, even when their companies are perhaps harming, like, the democracy. Like, when you were writing Glass Onion, were you feeling particularly frustrated about tech billionaires? Well, I mean, it's odd. Like, I wrote this movie in 2020. I wrote it a few years ago. So the cast of characters of who we were talking about as tech billionaires has, has kind of shifted a little. Um, so it's odd that the movie feels, feels this relevant in the present moment, but it does. Um, I mean, I, while I was writing, uh, I found it instantly unuseful and kind of boring to start thinking about any specific person. Um, the instance of making fun of tech billionaires. I mean, it's fun, but it's also kind of easy and <laughs> not all that interesting in terms of actually building a movie around it. Um, I guess what was more interesting to me is the idea of these people and their place in society and our relationship to them kind of as Americans. I think we, we do have this uniquely American thing. I can speak for myself. I have it built into us of just instinctually mistaking wealth for competence or wisdom. And and we also have this relationship with this with these folks where we we want to sling arrows at them and make fun of them and quote tweet them and put them down on Twitter. But we also though all have that deep down thing inside where we also kind of want them to be Willy Wonka. You know, <laughs> we also want there like well maybe you don't bet against them. You know, so th- that tension. Yeah, look to them for solutions. Yeah, completely. We think maybe they'll take us up in the great glass elevator and take us to Mars. He also uses this word disruptor a lot, which was a very popular word in the tech world for a while. This idea that um, you have to break things to make things better. And he's very lazy in the way he uses it. Like he seems not really to think about what he's saying. At one point he even says, she disrupted herself. (laughs) She disrupted her own disruption. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So like – that that word seems pretty ripe as a target these days. Huh? Yeah, and you know that's the other thing that I love about the murder mystery form is it's you think about what it actually is. It's at its essence, it's building up a little group of suspects who all have a power dynamic within the group. You're essentially building a little microcosm of, of society. So it's it, it's a 
great, great tool for looking at systems and kind of examining systems that exist within society. That's why I was so excited to make a present day one that actually just engaged with America right now because I feel like it hadn't been used for that in a long while. All in the context of, of a fun murder mystery of this candy-coated shell. Um, so all to say that Miles is obviously at the top of this power structure. He doesn't actually want to disrupt <laughs> anything. <laughs> he is sitting pretty. Disruption would not help him. It, really. it absolutely would not. And so um, the notion of disruption actually being applied to that would be actually horrifying to somebody like that. So that seemed interesting to me. Uh, Ryan, I'd like to talk about some of your earlier films, starting um, with your first movie, Brick, from 2005, which I really enjoyed seeing the first time I saw it and and just as much recently when preparing for this interview. Um, this is like a hard-boiled crime story that takes place in a high school. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the star of it. And like all the characters that you would find in hard crime story are here but they're just all teenagers. There's like the gumshoe detective. There's the femme fatale. There's the heavy, the kingpin. They're all like teenagers or very young adults. And one of the interesting things about the movie is like all the characters sound like they're right out of a detective film or novel from like the 30s and 40s. So um, so how did that idea come to you of setting like a crime, a hard-boiled crime, particularly of like the 30s and 40s in like a contemporary high school? Well, I mean, the pathway to it was, first of all, I was obsessed with the, the Coen brothers film Miller's Crossing and reading interviews with them led me to Dashiell Hammett's books, which I was familiar with film noir, but I never actually read the source. And discovering those books and the continental op stories um, that he wrote just felt kind of like this visceral punch to the gut. And there was something so powerful about them. And so it was kind of wanting to get trying to cut through kind of the haze of um, our collective nostalgia about film noir and kind of get to what I felt actually reading those books. And it was that combined with, I wrote it in my early 20s when I was right out of college and high school was something that I'd still fairly recently come out of. And there was something about um, kind of the stratified, terrifying world <laughs> of these detective novels that lined up with my emotional memories of, of high school. And so putting it in that setting both took away the audience's ability to lean on their preconceptions of, you know, of wet alleyways and Venetian blind shadows and fedoras. And it put in a new setting to just so that we'd have to come at it fresh as an audience. It also connected up in a way with, um, with these kind of deep, dark emotional memories of, <laughs> of surviving high school. The dialogue sort of made me, I mean, it's it's so estranged from my experience as a teen, but it, it sort of reminded me of like that heightened sense of drama that when you were there. Absolutely. Age. The stakes feel life and death. <laughs> and and also yeah. it, it yeah. feels, I don't know, there's, you know, the, the, think about, you know, the detective going to the high society party and, it feeling kind of like this uh, this world that has rules that you don't quite know and feels kind of terrifying. And there are so many situations in high school that felt that way to me. So you you had like when you're writing, you had a real sense memory of what that was all like. Um, it's not like I had an exceedingly traumatic high school experience, but I was definitely not popular 
high school, I was definitely had a good group of friends, but we did the place where Brendan, Joseph Corin Levitt's character, eats lunch in the back of the school at that like drainage ditch. That's actually where my friends and I ate lunch during school. Cause, yeah, because you filmed it at your actual high school, right? We San did. Clemente. Yeah, we filmed it at San Clemente yeah. High School where, where I went. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I read that you said that you had a lot of helplessness and rage back then. Yeah, yeah, I feel I feel like I definitely did. I don't know how much everyone does to some degree during teenage years, you know. I feel like um being an adult is just realizing you didn't actually connect or know so many of the people except through the lens of what their place was in this in this social order. Um maybe things have changed for for high schoolers these days. I don't think so. <laughs> Very possible they haven't. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to play a, a scene from Brick um, just to give us a sense of the language, the dialogue. And this is a rare scene where there's an adult in the movie. The The whole world is almost completely parentless. Um, so the main character, Brendan, as I said, is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, he's been trying to find out what's happened to his ex-girlfriend, Emily, who's gone missing. She's gotten involved with this like bad druggy crowd. And he's been trying to snoop out what's been happening Right before the scene, he's been punched and knocked out by this heavy, and he's been brought into the assistant vice principal's office. And they have a relationship because in the past, like Brendan helped bust like a local high school drug dealer named Jared. In this scene, the vice principal is played by Richard Roundtree. And this is kind of like the scene in film noir, like where the detective gets like pulled into the police department to get yelled at. So you didn't know this boy? No, sir. Never seen him. Hmm. And he just hit you. Like I said, he asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. Okay, Brandon. I've been looking to talk to you, man. You've helped this office out before. No. I gave you Jared to see him eaten, not to see you fed. Fine. Very well put. Accelerated English, Mrs. Kasperzik. Tough teacher. Tough, but fair. Okay. We know you're clean, and you, despite your motives, you've always been an asset to this office, and you're a good kid. Uh-huh. I want to run some names past you. Hold it, we're not done here. I was done here three months ago. I told you then I'd give you Jer, and that was that. I'm not your inside line, and I'm not your boy. That's not very You know helpful. what I'm in if the wrong Yeg saw me pulled in here? What are you in? No. And no more of these informal chats either. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. And I'll see you at the parent conference. <laughs> That's a great scene from Brick, the first movie by my guest, uh, Ryan Johnson. Ryan, I love, that, I love that line. I'll see you at the parent conference. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, two things. The, the VP, uh, this kind of a stand-in for our chief of police there, is, is played by the great Richard Roundtree, who... Um, Besides just being a lovely guy who came into this very, very weird movie for one day and God bless him, uh, knocked it out of the park. He's, I was excited because Shaft um, is kind of like a similar animal. It's, it's, it's uh, very much repositioning the classic kind of Hammett P.I., um, in that case kind of in the exploitation genre. And so um, it, was, it was fun to have Richard... And the movie, also the English teacher that Joe mentions, um, Mrs. Kasperzik, that's Sheila Kasperzik was my high school English teacher, who was very tough but fair. 
Um, she passed away a few years ago and she, she is, was the first person to kind of encourage me seriously as a writer and taking her class at San Clemente High is a big part of the reason I, um, I'm, I'm writing stories for a living today. So are you, uh, writing the next Knives Out mystery? Yeah, right now I'm I'm I got a cloud of ideas going. I haven't really struck on the thing that makes it all lock together, but I'm I'm starting. I'm trying to get ahead of the game and and trying to kind of figure out what it's going to be. I mean, it's incredibly exciting to me. Like I I guess I I kind of expected I would it would be healthy to do something completely different next before I made another Benoit Blanc mystery, but the reality is I just keep coming back to being excited by what the third movie can be. How it could be completely different from from the first two. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm into it. Great. Well, I, I look forward to seeing that. Um, Ryan Johnson, it's been really a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Sam. Ryan Johnson wrote and directed the new film Glass Onion, a sequel to his film Knives Out. Glass Onion is in theaters now and will be streaming on Netflix December 23rd. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer this week is Adam Staniszewski. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger.